HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll load. Knows that country music's gonna save your soul. The in them rhythm and blues that sound. It's gonna get you Welcome back to the Speakeasy. I'm Souther Teague. I'm Greg Benson. Hey, Greg. Hey, Souther. What's going on, You're man? sort of sitting in my chair. What? This is my chair. Well, it's my chair usually when Damon's here. I was going to say, yeah, you've, you've moved up to the, the big boy chair now, man. Well, <laughs> only while Damon's out of town. He will, <laughs> Hi, Damon. He will definitely be back. Um, what you been up to this week, Greg? Um, not much. Just uh, still, uh, still got some April sours going on up at our bar. Doing this. <laughs> when it rains, you pour. Exactly. When it rains, we pour. Hashtag it. Get it trending. Um, yeah, we got some really cool stuff. We got some local stuff on. We still have um, one of my favorites, actually. It's a, it's a beer that is fermented in this giant, instead of like a big stainless steel tank, it's fermented in this big oak barrel called a fooder. Um, and it's delicious. It's made by uh, Catskill Brewing up in uh, Livingston Manor, New York. And I keep having to... Uh, Put the hard sell on people because as good as it is, people don't know what the word "fooder" means. So it's <laughs> it's an uphill battle, but people are always happy once they get there. What about you, man? What's going on? How many yeah. bars you open this week? Um, just just one more. <laughs> um, but I've also started writing another book too. So one more bar, one more book each week. That's my goal. Just one and one. <laughs> a bar and a book a week. Yeah, we're that sounds uh, about we're, right. We're closing in on the opening of Honeybee. It's going to be our American whiskey and beer bar that serves uh, barbecue. Um, in a beautiful space that's uh, made to look, in my opinion, like uh, I've been describing it as a honky-tonk saloon in Texas about 100 years ago, but the poker room in that honky-tonk saloon. Oh. So a lot of crushed red and black velvet, uh, that felty wallpaper, a bunch of slow-spinning fans that are all belted together. Uh, yeah. Old-timey, old-timey poker disputes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Lots of reds and blacks. Nice. Uh, yeah, it's real. it's going to be pretty cool. Yeah. Sounds um, sexy. Yeah. Well, 
Welcome to the studio, Greg. Um, listen, today's show, we're going to be talking about a lot of rum, and a lot of real rum, and what real rum means, right? So in, in the studio today, we've got Bailey Pryor of Real McCoy Rum from Barbados. Uh, sitting next to him is Josh Perez, one of my good friends, uh, former workmate. We worked together at Booker and Dax. We worked together for the B team for Montenegro. Uh, Josh has been a player in the game for a long time. Uh, welcome to the studio, guys. Thanks for having us. Speak up, Josh. <laughs> Thanks, other. <laughs> Good to see you, buddy. Your you voice have, sounds fine. You don't have to say much. Uh, he's definitely more handsome than radio. Um, <laughs> Bailey, you're a pretty fascinating guy, and I'm learning more and more about you today as we uh, sat here before the show, a little chit-chat, uh, and, and the bio that uh, whoever sent over, over for me. I had no idea that you were um, a writer, producer, director, uh, and been doing television and movies for 25 years. You've got... Uh, over 150 television programs in your in your career, uh, a bunch of Emmy nominations and and wins, uh, and then you made a movie about rum. Yes, and then that's how how you got here. Talk to us exactly right. about that career first. Sure. And how I mean I'm sure that that sounds like a stressful career. And stressful career typically drive people to drink. Maybe that's the easy answer. <laughs> talk <laughs> no, about no, talk was... about being in television and writing. Are you still in that? I'm still in that. Yeah. So I I got into um, I grew up in Mystic, Connecticut, and I got into the film industry because the movie Mystic Pizza came to my hometown when right? I was about 17 years old, and I ran away with a circus basically and worked on that film. And so that's what got me into it. And and I worked for a little while at 20th Century Fox, a little while at Samuel Goldwyn Company, and um, did a couple films like I worked on Home Alone and Mystic Pizza and a few others. And so that that really got me going into that whole business. And then I got recruited by Warren Miller Films to go make ski and snowboard movies out in Colorado called the Warren Miller, you know, the famous Warren Miller Entertainment Films. And, And so I ran that company for a number of years. Uh, and, and that's kind of what got me into documentaries. And I just love documentaries, the freedom to do the research, to, to figure out um, the detailed information. It was really, really fun, and I, it just spoke to me. So I've been making lots of documentary films over the years, and I think about 15, 16 films for PBS in the last you know, 10 years or so. And, and so that's been a major part of my career. And it was while I was making one of those films called The Real McCoy, about uh, Bill McCoy and the rum runners of the Prohibition era, that I came up with the idea to start the rum company. And it was kind of interesting because McCoy, I thought, was just such a great character. And so I, I pitched the idea at the network. And basically, he was the first rum runner to fill up a boat full of rum in the Caribbean in January of 1920, right when Prohibition began. He sailed it up to New York City and acted as a floating liquor store three miles offshore. And so that wasn't illegal back then because in 1920, three miles out was international waters. So he could hang out there with impunity, and the Coast Guard couldn't do anything about it. And he became known as the real McCoy for never adulterating the rum, never cutting it with anything, like turpentine, wood alcohol, prune juice were the things that people were typically cutting the alcohol with back then. Mixology. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Very early mixology. (laughs) Well, they would go down, and they would haul back what they could haul back, and they would stretch it so that it would make their trip more worthwhile. They were cutting them. Exactly, exactly, to make more more money with it. And, And those products got nicknamed booze and hooch and rot gut. And McCoy never did that, so they nicknamed his product The Real McCoy, and that's why we know all those phrases today. And I just thought that was a really interesting story for a film because Bill McCoy is the only name you know from the Prohibition era who was not a psychopathic murderer, right? <laughs> Al Capone, Babyface Nelson, Machine Gun Kelly, Meyer Lansky, right? All these people were just psychos, and then there's the guy who refused to cut the alcohol and rip off his customers. So I, I thought that was a really interesting approach to it. So I, I pitched it at the at PBS and at first they they said, well, we don't think that's right for us who's, doing. Who's going to watch? Who's going to want to watch this boring guy? This boring guy, right? right we right. we romanticize. We, we we overly romanticize prohibition, and we like exalt all these dudes who were 
fucking bald face killers. Yeah, absolutely. Right? absolutely. And then you got this guy who's like just doing the quote unquote the right thing. Exactly. Still breaking the law, but the <laughs> right way. He actually never broke the law. He never came inside <laughs> U.S. territorial waters. It was pretty funny. But he, you know, I found it to be an interesting story. I pitched it to the network and they said no. They said, we don't know if we're ready to do a film about alcohol. So I went and made the movie myself anyway and just wow. used my own money. And it took me five years to complete the film. And I was doing other films for PBS at the time. So I could kind of do this a little bit here and a little bit there. So it took me a long time to make the movie. And after five years, I finished the film. I submit it back to the president of the network, who's a friend of mine. And I said, you know, Jerry, take a look at this thing and tell me what you think. And he watched it. And he came back and said, I think it's fantastic. We want to put it on the, on the, on the air right now. So they did. And about six months later, I get this letter from the National Academy of Television Arts and Sciences saying you've been nominated for five Emmy Awards. And because I had I had no money to make the film, I had to do all the jobs myself. So I wrote it, directed it, edited it, was a cinematographer and the, and so the got, producer. You swept the noms because you, you were every player. I got nominated for all five of those. And then we won all five of them, which was insane. So I had wow. to go up on that stage five times, which was ridiculous because the first time I like forgot to thank my wife and was like you know it's, it's freaky going yeah, up there four other on, chances. on time yeah. number five where you're just like uh you know my mailman's pretty good exactly uh, I was thinking the here. FedEx guy and my third grade teacher <laughs> cut, and cut you know, and all paste everything I said before <laughs> <laughs> so uh so it was pretty funny and 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 that's what kind of got me into the concept of doing the, the rum and while I was making the film about rum I saw um all of these photographs that Bill McCoy and his crew took on the deck of their ship back in 1920 and in some of those pictures, you can see barrels of rum that have custom stamps on the barrels that say Barbados rum. So I knew he was buying his rum from Barbados because somebody paid the tax to get that stamp. So I went down there and met with the head of the National Archives. It's a tax-paying bootlegger. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, this is the most boring Yeah, bootlegger. I was going to say, yeah, just the nicest, <laughs> sweetest nicest dude. Ever, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah he was, and he was a teetotaler. He never drank, actually. Of, kind of, of course he Oh, come on. Now the story's getting too far-fetched. <laughs> so, Called his uh, mother every day and told her that he loved her. <laughs> But he, um, uh, so when we got down to Barbados, I showed them the photographs and said, well, which distillery would this have been back in 1920? And, and she said she couldn't tell from the images. It was just a standard barrel. And, and she said it's got to be, she thought it had to be Foursquare Distillery Richard Seals Company because his family would have been the only ones big enough back in 1920 to actually export off the island when there were only 40,000 people living there. And so I thought it might have been another company. I talked to them. And they said, no, it definitely wasn't us. We, you know, we think it's Richard Seal and, and the Foursquare Distillery. So that's where I went. I met with Richard and talked to him about making the type of rum that would have been on McCoy's boat back in 1920. What was that? And he said, well, that would be a very rare kind of rum, in the, especially in the United States, because we wouldn't have anything added to it after it's been distilled. It would be, it was long before the multi-column still was invented. It would have been unadulterated pot still rum aged in, in American oak barrels. And so that's what we went for. And this was 2009 when we started. I didn't start selling any till 2013. We were just aging it at the time. And then, uh, and then it, the rum came out right at the same time as the movie. So I launched both at the same in the same uh. year in in 2013. And we won the Emmys. And and Richard ended up winning just about every award you can win in the in the uh, spirits industry for the rums because they were. Very unique and and uh, totally unadulterated, which is really fun. Well, and he's uh, he's he's a pretty badass dude in the distilling world. I, I met him at a dinner that we did together at yeah, uh, no Polynesian in, mm-hmm. in New York City, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, uh, he's amazing. He's become the icon like a, in kind the of rum a super industry. Super genius distiller guy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and so, it's been fun learning from Richard over the years because uh, you know for me personally, doing my research into my documentary films, I've been researching rum for a long time. So I did a five week apprenticeship down in Martinique at Rum Clement and Rum Nissan and learned about the French AOC regulated processes of making rum. And then met Richard and started working with Richard. I've apprenticed for, with him for about eight years now for a long time. Um, just asking him every question I could come up with through that time period. I, I pester him all the time with this stuff and have been learning quite a bit. And then I found out over time that the, the whole influence of the Caribbean rum tradition originally hundreds of years ago came from the Scottish tradition of making single malt whiskey because that's where those stills came into the Anglophile Caribbean world, the, the, the British protectorate islands of Jamaica and Barbados. So they were bringing Scottish stills down made with, with Scottish copper and eventually that morphed into its own techniques and style and traditions in Barbados and Jamaica. So I went to Scotland to study at the Ballandalock Distillery in, in, uh, in, on the Speyside region and did an apprenticeship there to learn more about how they do it as well. Hmm. What I, I guess the, the question that jumped into the front of my mind is, like, I get into a lot of things. I enjoy a lot of things, but I don't then go out and make a whole new thing. I, I like sailing. I've never gone and started my own sailboat building company. You know, like, let's build your let's build and sell my own sailboats. I just go sailing. Yeah, I, you know, I would be like, okay, this is great. Rum's great. I'm just gonna go drink some rum. You just decided I'm gonna go meet this dude, convince him to give me an apprenticeship. And yeah. make rum. Yeah, exactly right. Like, how did you even fund that? Like, where does that even begin? Well, it was just, you know, I just did it with my own money in the beginning and then just started learning the process. And I, I don't know why. I mean, it's, we all come up with these crazy ideas to start businesses. You know, you'll sit there in your living room one day and go, you know, I got this idea for a new widget and I think I'll do that. And then the phone rings and you forget all about it. And in this case, I don't know why the phone didn't ring and I didn't forget all about it. I just kind of went after it. But I, that's typically how I do what I do. I'm very much like a you know, a, a hound dog when it comes to this stuff. When I come up with these ideas, I go all the way down the road with them. Well, sure. As a documentary filmmaker, I'm sure you, you dig in and you research yeah. and you, you immerse exactly. yourself in it. I bet you get lost in these things. And yep. it seems like you got lost in this one and yeah, yeah. you and found it was yourself fun. at the bottom of a barrel. <laughs> <laughs> or the top of one actually well, at this point. <laughs> well, I kind of, what was, what was Richard Seal doing when you came to him and you're like, Hey, I want to make this rum that we haven't seen for almost a century. Was he kind of like, like you're insane. No one's gonna want this. Or was he like, I've been waiting my whole career for he someone was, to ask yeah, me to do this. He was very to knock on my door. <laughs> he was very excited because Richard is a very reserved guy. He people warned me. You know, they said, well, if you're, Richard doesn't work with outside people, you know, he's gonna turn you down. And so, you know, you're just some weird movie guy. When you go in there, he's gonna he's gonna tell you to get lost. But what he told me was, you know, everybody who calls me and wants me to make rum with them, they always ask for the same thing. They always say, can you sell it to me in bulk? And then I'm going to ship it to the United States and put ink and sugar in it and call it Barbados rum. And he turns all those people down because he doesn't want to destroy the traditions and the history of the rum making process in Barbados. And Richard is the last of the, of the Barbadian rum experts to actually own a distillery uh, in Barbados. And, you know, think of what just happened in, in Ireland. There are no more mm, Irish people right. who own and control Irish whiskey. There's no more distilleries that are just outright owned by a family in Ireland. So they're losing that tradition to, you know, the agendas of bigger companies that may or may not really 
want to enforce those regulations or, 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 care, about or care about heritage or any of those kinds of things. So it's a tragedy to Ireland losing that. And, and it sounds like other people are trying to get that back going again. But in Barbados, we're literally one heartbeat away from no longer having Barbadian rum makers. And Barbados is absolutely the birthplace of rum. Three, you know, 1641 was the first documented evidence of, of rum being made in Barbados. How many distillers, do you know how many distillers are still operating in general? There were 75 distilleries on the island of Barbados in 1918. Today, there are four. Wow. One of the four is What's a, the population? Uh, about 350,000 people. Four distilleries. Four distilleries. And, and one is the, a giant distillery that makes Malibu. Sure. Um, another one is Mount Gay, of course. And then there's Foursquare. And those are the three big ones on the island. There's one very small uh, facility called St. Nicholas Abbey that's owned by some good friends of ours, Larry Warren. And and uh, and that's more of a tourist destination with a very small still, and they're making their own uh, unique product. But they actually learned from Richard, and he was advising them and helped them develop their their uh, business. So it, you know, Richard really is the last of the rum experts who's a Barbadian to actually own and control a distillery. And so everything else is owned wow. by international interest, and and those folks are doing different things with it. You know, and and over time you start to lose that tradition, and and marketing starts to take over, and you know, profit margins start to take over. And I, I'm, unfortunately, I'm concerned about the future of the Barbados rum as a result. Well, at least you're out there, you know, continuing to preach the gospel. and Absolutely. You know, going on radio shows like this where some people will hear you. Yep. Um, we're about to cut away, but let's, uh, uh, Josh lined us up uh, a bunch of tastes here. You got a bunch of bottles on the table. Let's, uh, which one should we start with? Josh. I'd say let's start with the three-year. So we have a traditional three, five, and 12. But the three years is definitely more about the natural flavor of the rum. Yeah. Uh, and then from there, we can go to the five or the 12, and you'll get more of the barrel expression. Yeah, but, so the three is the first one, the white yeah, one, right? Yeah, let's start with the three-year. Yeah. Talk to us about it while we smell it. Well, the three-year, it's kind of fun. The three-year is actually aged for a full three years. Uh, in, 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 <laughs> go figure. That's why we call it the three-year. Uh, and you'll notice on our bottle Truth labels <laughs> that we, we are very proud of the fact that we have um, these age brackets. So the three-year um, comes out of the barrel a very rich um, sort of straw color, a little, you know, quite a bit darker than you see now. And we do one pass on a charcoal filter uh, because, you know, people want a white rum for mixed drinks. That's what people think about. And they've been trained to think that way about it. So we create that product for that purpose. Um, lots of people use it in different types of cocktails. And, and uh, as Josh mentioned, you're, you're, what you're tasting there is a blend of two different kinds of stills. There's a pot still. Richard has a 1750 liter copper pot still with a double retort which is a, a, a Caribbean traditional product uh, or, or type of device, um, which makes a very robust and flavorful rum. And then he also has a two-column coffee still that Enos Coffee invented in the late, or middle 1800s. And, and that one, in, uh, in its own right, generates a very light flavor and aroma type of rum. So you take the heavy rum and the light rum, you blend them together, and that's the Barbados rum tradition. So when you take those two, put that together, you end up with an extremely well-balanced product at this point. Yeah. This yeah, the balance a, on it is really... There's there's something on the finish, like at the very... It kind of surprised me as you were talking. I thought the flavor was done, and there was kind of a boo at the very end, a little stinger of almost like a... Like, it's lightly floral. It's almost a little bit bready. I don't hmm. know. What are you getting off of it? Yeah, a little bit of grass towards the finish. I don't know. It's, uh, it's dry and and... Again, really well balanced. Like I always think of, I I'll admit that I've admitted, admitted before on the on the show, rum is my least strong category. 
I do like to drink it, but I don't think I know enough about it. And I think we're going to talk about this in the second half of the show. Why I don't know enough about it. Exactly. Is it's hard because to it's know it's fucking confusing. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, but I find that it's got a real strong, uh, a, real, a real strong balance of, of dry and sweet. Yeah. Like it, it toes the line. Like it hits my tongue and I feel like, oh, this is kind of sweet. Oh, wait, this dried out real fast. Yeah, because it doesn't have sweetener added. Right. So most rums that you're used to have had a lot of sugar added. In some cases, we have some rums in the marketplace today that have up to 96 grams of sugar per liter, Damn. which is about a third of the bottle filled with pile of white sugar. Visualize that. Yeah, that's you that's know, crazy. It's crazy, and so they. I, put, I, I love it yeah. when people do the visual, and yeah, I, I've seen yeah, that before, it, where people it, it be like, "This much of the bottle is full of sugar." Right, right. So if you knew that there was that much sugar in it, you probably wouldn't drink that product. But but because we don't have transparency and labeling in the United States, the TTB, the federal government, doesn't doesn't enforce labeling in any beverage alcohol. So you can't buy a box of cereal in the in the in the grocery store and not know every single thing about that cereal, the contents and the sugar additives and all these kinds of things, but not one bottle of of wine, beer or spirits gives you any of that information. Yeah. And so there's a ton of additives in all, in these products unless you seek out the unadulterated products. Yeah, it's always shocked me that I can go to the store right now and buy a literally a bottle of water and it will have nutrition information on it, all zeros. Exactly. Right? But if I and buy a beer, a wine, yeah, if I buy beer, wine, look at nothing. None of that's on there. Right. It's crazy. That's how powerful the beverage alcohol industry yeah. is. <laughs> hey, I'm not complaining. It's like a sugar guy. I'm not complaining. I'm just pointing it out. <laughs> uh, okay, listen, uh, we're going to take a quick break uh, uh, and hear from our sponsors, one of which, by the way, this show part uh, brought to you in part by Amoria Margo, uh, a bitters bar in the East Village that's been around for eight years. You should definitely check it out. Amoria Margo. It's uh, at 6th Street and Avenue A. Uh, we're going to take a break and hear from our sponsors, and we'll be right back with the team from uh, Real McCoy Rum. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. Hi, my name is Sam Ben Ruby, and I'm the host of The Grape Nation on Heritage Radio Network. With this show, we bring wine to the people. Each week, we bring the best guests in wine on, taste different wines on air, and invite our listeners to taste with us. You'll find our approach to wine decidedly unsnobby. You can find The Grape Nation wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. Welcome back to the Speakeasy on Heritage Radio Network. Uh, we're hanging out in the studio with uh, uh, 
the team from the re- the real McCoy rum. I didn't realize before I said real McCoy, but it's the real McCoy. We won't always have that the on there, right? Sure. Yeah, because that would be great. That's the phrase. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's, let's do the branding correctly. Uh, we already tasted uh, some of your three year, which is delicious. Um, Thank you. But what 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 we've been talking about off the air, and I think I want to bring it obviously to the to the audience on the air is. Um, I was under the false impression until today, until you told me off the air, that rum was kind of the wild west of spirits, that there are no rules and no regulations and no governing body and, and all that junk. And that's why you got uh, your your runs, your run, your your rums and your rums with an H and, uh, you know, and there's no regulating thing going on out there. So like uncategorizable, like, you know, that's why I throw my hands in the air and say that's my least strong category. Yeah. It, but you it, revealed to me that's not the truth. It's actually not the truth. And it's it's something that has been sort of propagated, I think, whether a coordinated effort or, or it's just something that people are, are find it easy to discuss in this way. But the reality is, bar, uh, you know, the, the rums of the world usually have a tremendous amount of regulation and rules. It's just that the TTB, which is the governing body in the United States over alcohol and, and in the European Union as well, they don't enforce the laws of the Caribbean islands. So the U.S. government doesn't you know, enforce and recognize the rules of Jamaica and the rules of Barbados, which have existed for a very long time. So they do recognize cognac in France. They recognize champagne in France. They recognize bourbon in Kentucky, places like that. But they, for whatever reason, they just think rum is rum is rum because the big companies keep telling everybody the same thing, that rum is, is dark or light, which means absolutely nothing. I mean, what does dark tell you about the contents of the rum, the history, the progeny, the technique in production, right? I mean, we know about bourbon. We know that there's a mash bill with bourbon. We know about single malt, scotch whiskey. Is it all just whiskey? Right. And, and that's the big difference in rum. There are definitely different categories. There's there's aged rum. There's unaged rum. There's modified rum. There's unmodified rum. If I if I take my 12 year aged rum, which I lose between six and eight percent every year to evaporation in the barrel, it becomes colored from the being in the barrel that long period of time. At the end of that 12 years, if I take that that rum and bring it to a, co- a, a competition in the United States, they'll put it in the category with dark rum. So they'll take somebody who just has neutral spirit who puts ink in it and put that next to my rum and we're, we're judged in the same category. Right. I mean, imagine if only the, the only rums you'd ever tasted were, you know, these big industrial rums, which is the case of most people in the United States. You've never really had the chance to experience the high end and, and custom made rums, the, the pot still rums of Jamaica and Barbados. It's like saying, imagine if the only whiskey you'd ever had was flavored moonshine. And everyone was just arguing over how great this cranberry moonshine was or this. It's just neutral spirit with a bunch of sugar in it and, and cranberry flavoring and things like that. Then you then you find and discover single malt. Then you find and discover bourbon. That's the difference. That's the real spectrum of rum that we don't know about because there have been hundreds of millions of dollars spent in marketing to not talk about that stuff. And what, so what can you do about this? Well, you can look at the the traditions of these different islands. For example, if you go look at the Jamaican pot still rums, Jamaican rum is extremely unique, very specific, amazing products, right? So you have companies like Hampton Estate, Appleton, um, you've got Worthy Park. These are all very traditional Jamaican rum brands, and you can find amazing spirits from them, and they'll be big and robust, especially Hampton and Worthy Park. You'll get these enormous uh, flavor profiles, and that is traditional Jamaican rum. 
So then you go over to Barbados, where they did, where they brought in the the two column coffee still in the 1800s. They didn't do that in Jamaica initially. So you start to get these much more balanced rums. So you taste real McCoy, and the first thing you guys said was, "Wow, that three years really balanced. It's like really you get some sweetness, you get some dry. Yep. It doesn't, doesn't taste like some glob of caramel that somebody poured into it." So that's the difference between like a big Jamaican pot still rum and a beautiful balanced, you know, uh, blended uh, Barbados rum. And neither of those have any similarity whatsoever to the candy rums that you find on in a big industrial scale. And so, all right. So as the consumer, I, I need to be a little bit more aware. Hopefully I can, you know, Google or go to some websites, uh, go to the individual websites of the, of the producers and get more information. But oftentimes that stuff gets romanticized and hidden as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. So as, as a maker... You mentioned off the air you're you're going to try and form sort of a coalition with other islands and other other uh, rum makers. We are, yeah, similar to what happened with with single malt Scotch whiskey. Talk about that some. That's exactly right. So we've started a new group called the Guardians of Rum, and the goal of this are it's a like number the Guardians of, of the Galaxy. You exactly get, like, right. Cool uniforms In, inspired by the uniforms. We all want to <laughs> wear spandex when we come to work every day. Have a great soundtrack. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's, that's, that's sell the movie. Oh, yeah. So the, the, the Guardians, the whole idea is to work together to enforce the, the rules of the various nations of the Caribbean and get them recognized by the TTB in the United States and by the European Union so that a, a St. Lucian rum is defined a certain way, so that a, a Puerto Rican rum is defined a certain way. Um, a Jamaican rum is recognized and found as a certain way. They're all different styles. So you can get very different things from that process. And, and uh, that's what we're trying to do is first identify that all these rules and regulations do exist and that we want the U.S. government to recognize them. And when they do, they'll be as treasured as cognac and champagne and bourbon are today. And it's just a matter of time before we get this done. But we're banding together to do it. Well, it seems, it seems like you've got your work cut out for you. Like, it makes me think of, um, <laughs> I'm from D.C. It makes me think of the D.C. measure system, which is just a, a clusterfuck because they have to deal with the separate governments of Washington, D.C. and Virginia and Maryland to get stuff done. So sure. there's, like, a lot of competing interests there. And I, it, it's, I mean, the comparison to Scotland seems apt, sure, but Scotland's kind of a it's a tiny place compared to trying to get everyone in the Caribbean to work together. Well, the Caribbean's a pretty tiny place as well. And when you think about how yeah, diverse spread Scotland out by is, water. Yeah. <laughs> and when you think about how diverse Scotland is, I mean, you have the Speyside region, right? Along the Spey River. That's a very specific type of, of single malt whiskey that's made there. You have the Islay region. They do all the peating and all the so smoky and very different kind of stuff. You have the lowland areas as well down by Edinburgh. They make completely different products. So you have three very different styles, even in one geographic designation area inside of Scotland. So it's the same kind of thing in, in the Caribbean. And it's not that everybody's trying to say, well, all rum has to be made a certain way. It's just that the Barbadians are going to make it one way. The Jamaicans are going to make it another. The, the Martinicans, the, the, the Puerto Ricans, you know, the, the St. Lucians, they're all going to have their own styles. But we want to observe those laws and respect those laws. And we're not trying to tell everybody that to make it a, one single way. We're just trying to say, if it's coming from this nation, you should enforce the laws of that nation and respect what that product is. Sure, and it seems like it shouldn't be such a fight to get the government, uh, the American government or other governments to recognize that. It really isn't, just no one's done it yet. So we're going after it, and we're banding together to do it. And by banding together, it makes a big indication. And none of us are arguing among each other. We're all great friends. you know. So Roberto Sorales at Don Q. Rum in in Puerto Rico is a great friend, and we're all working together. You know, uh, Christelle, who who owns uh, Hampton Estates in in Jamaica, same thing. 
Ben Jones at, at Rum Clement in, in Martinique, Richard Seal in Barbados. We're coming together to show people not only that there are different types of rum and it's not all just industrial alcohol with ink and sugar and it named after aliens and space monsters and things like that. <laughs> it's really about the, the tradition, the culture, the history. There's this incredible spectrum of products out there that people in America don't even really know about unless you've been down to those islands. And then you, you taste it and you go, oh my gosh, this is so amazing. I had no idea rum could be like this. It's a really wonderful world to go experiment in. And not only that, it's incredibly inexpensive. I mean, you look at the average bottle of, of bourbon compared to the average bottle of really fine rum, you will find it's much less expensive. So here's this great place to go exploring into this romantic world of rum, and it's not very expensive to get in there and, and play around. Right. You, uh, I mean, this is totally off topic, and it's just the way that my mind thinks, because I'm doing this again. You, you think about writing a book about this? Like, uh, is there a resource out there a, that, that I'm talks about this? I'm making a film about it right now. Oh, okay, perfect. And the That's name of the film stuff. is The Last Barbadian, and it's the whole story of Richard Seale and the, you know, his fight to create a geographic indication, but also to talk about the history of rum and to get people to understand exactly what I'm talking about. Because, you know, I don't come forward as being, quote, the expert on any of this. My job is to communicate the information, and I bring the people who are the experts, who've lived there their whole lives, like in Richard's case, four generations of rum making in Barbados, let him do the talking. And this is what I specialize in with my let films. The, let the Jews do the talking, too. <laughs> right. Let, let the absolutely let the juice do the talking. The rum do the talking. Yeah. Speaking of letting the That's, rum do yeah. the talking. <laughs> Look at Greg. He's, uh, Greg's like, he's, he's reaching expert. for the next taste. He's expert at this uh, co-host gig. <laughs> Josh, why don't you take us through the five year? The the five year. This is your first one that you released, right? It is. Yes. So, yeah, that's the one that uh, when I first met Richard, that's the one we found first. We were aging and tasting different things along the road. And, and the five year was the one we, we got to and said, well, this is the one we want to launch the rum on. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of rum people hate it when I kind of compare to whiskey. But I, I have a whiskey background. I love whiskey. I worked at a whiskey bar. Um, but to me, this is a very easy bridge for American whiskey drinkers to get into rum because we I, I agree that, right away after tasting same, it. Uh, you know, I used to think that rum is this sugary, sweet spirit. I don't know why people drink it. I was all about whiskey, whiskey, whiskey. And then, but this one has that similar flavor profile and it's bone dry. Um, and then when you realize that this is coming from a distillery that maintains those same standards as, you know, any whiskey that's coming out of Scotland or Ireland, the only difference is they're just not using grain, they're using molasses. You're like, wow, this is, you know, rum can be a really great brown sipping spirit. Mm -hmm. And I think the five year is a really easy bridge for those like American whiskey drinkers to get into the category. Absolutely. And you're, it, you know, a lot of that has to do with the fact that we're using ex bourbon barrels to mm -hmm. age the rum. So like the, like the single malt Scotch whiskey people, the tequila folks, the rum people all use um, ex bourbon barrels for the most part. Uh, we certainly have other barrels, you know, we use cognac and port and other things to do specialties and limited editions and things like that. But our core aging is, is in ex bourbon. So the lignans and tannins in the wood are going to be very familiar to the, the bourbon drinker. And the interesting thing about that is that a barrel itself, every time you use a barrel, it gets a little bit weaker. It's a lot like a battery. So when you first have a freshly created barrel and you put bourbon in it, the bourbon leaches out all these incredible wood sugars, and that's why bourbon is so sharp and intense. There's really big flavor profiles in bourbon. That's part of the reason. So, But what's happened there for those two or four years that the bourbon is aged, it's leached out a lot of that. So the barrel effect is a little bit weaker. Sure. And so we bring it down to Barbados, and we'll put our rum in, in that. It's called first use after bourbon. So the first use barrel, we drop it in there, and it'll st still have these big, robust flavor components. And that's mostly what you find with our five-year rum. And we might let it sit there for five years and then use it again. So on the second use, 
it'll we might let it sit for quite a bit longer maybe make our 12 year for example and now the those wood sugars have been mostly leached out so it's a, a lot weaker effect but you still get these great vanillins and these great earth and char notes so you really get these balanced and, and mature components in the 12 year uh, that you wouldn't uh, normally find if it were first use, for example. So that's why you can have all these variations and differences in flavor profile without putting any additives in it. It's really the art of the blender at this point. And it's delicious. It's got that, it, it has that that sneaky floral finish. It got me, it surprised me again. Huh. Uh, it's the sort of uh, jump scare at the very end of the palate where it's like you think it's done and then blah, it gets you. But it's nice. It is, it is, um, it's cool because at the beginning, like you mar- remarked on Southern, you get a lot of those very bourbony, familiar American whiskey flavors to it. But then it comes sure. in at the end. It's like, ha, still rum. Gotcha. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, well, absolutely. That's, and that's coming from the fermentation. You know, the, the, the big thing people forget about these processes is that when, with a distilled spirit, about 70% of your flavor profile comes from the fermented wine, the molasses wine that we make. Uh, to, to create the first tier of alcohol. So we'll take our molasses and we blend it with water from the island and we do these fermentations. And in our case, we go about 44 hours to do a 30,000 liter tank. And in that time period, we get this incredible wine that comes up to about 9.75% alcohol. And so you've got these big, rich uh, molasses components to it. It has really beautiful and even floral notes like you're talking about. And we bring those over to these two stills, either the the copper pot still with the double retort or to the two-column coffee still. And so we put that into those two devices, and they do different things in extracting the alcohol. And that's all that stills do. They just extract the alcohol from the wine or the beer that you've made. They don't add flavors and things like that. So um, the pot still is inefficient at extracting alcohol, so it keeps all those great flavor components from the wine. The column still is very efficient at extracting the alcohol, so it strips out most of that stuff, so you get a much lighter flavor profile. The big multi-column industrial alcohol stills that you find with the huge brands, they, they specialize in making neutral spirits, so they strip out essentially all of it. So essentially when you get a, a sugarcane vodka out of one of those big stills, you can't have any endogenous flavor yet. You can't really tell if this was made originally from a, a molasses wine or a, a grain beer or you know from uh, agave or anything else. It's been kind of stripped clean. So those producers want to go back to emulating what real rum tastes like by adding sweeteners and adding rum flavoring and adding colors and things like that. And so that's how you get these big industrial brands today. Right, and they do that because they get a better yield off that more efficient still. Yes. Uh, and, and then going back and adding flavors easier and more yield than just... Than actually than, aging. Than or, distilling right. kind of a, a, a lower on the dial is what I always think of it as like a, a still is a purifying machine and vodka guys want it to be all the way up to 11. Yeah. Whereas maybe the bourbon guys want it to be around four or five. Right. And other people want it in different, different dials where they want to hold on to some of the original flavor because... Right. Uh, but it seems seems like counterintuitive. I, I'm sure the numbers have been crunched, but it seems counterintuitive to strip out everything and go back and add fake things in. Well, it's just the technology. You know, right. I mean, it's people are just working with the equipment that they have. A, a lot of nations didn't bring in the multi-column still when it first came out in the 1930s. Like Jamaica never brought it in until the late 60s. So that's why the Jamaicans are always so, so focused on the big, robust pot still products. Right. And the Barbadians brought in the two-column coffee still early on, but didn't bring in the big multi-column still again until much later. Um, the Filipinos brought in um, the multi-column still as soon as it came out. The Puerto Ricans did, starting in Cuba and then into Puerto Rico. So their styles are very, very light. 
Um, my friend Roberto at, at Don Q, he also has a single column Creole still, and he blends, which also leaves a, a tremendous amount of flavor in the spirit. So he blends those two together to make Don Q. So you really mm -hmm. do have a nice balance. So the Puerto Rican style that he's making is actually quite similar to what's going on in Barbados, but a bit, quite a bit lighter. Um, so you just have these different regions with these different techniques, and they all have their own beautiful place in the world. It's the technology and the, and the, and the chemists, right? Well, with Pappy Van Winkle famously had a sign on his distillery that said, No chemists allowed. <laughs> uh, I'm going to paraphrase it, but it went on to say something like, uh, the, the distillers know how, and the, and, the, and the grains and fermentation will do just fine here. Yeah. No yeah, chemists sure. allowed. Sure, sure. <laughs> That's <laughs> right? great. He's rolling over in his grave today. Um, <laughs> well, let's taste one more and keep talking. Uh, I want to talk to you. One of the things you sent me as your list of things you wanted to talk about was um, uh, just says Caribbean aging. There's no such thing as a 30-year-old rum. What does that mean? And, yeah, and, yeah. And so before we talk about that, let's sure. talk about this real quick. We'll What's the next the, one on the list the here? The next one on the list is our 12-year rum. So this has oh. been aged a full 12 years. And with each of our brands, um, or each of our expressions, you'll see that we call it the three-year, the five-year, and the 12-year because it's 100% is aged at least that amount. So we always have uh, the, you know, the full three years, the full five years, and the full 12. And what, what I meant by that statement about there's no such thing as a 30-year-old rum is the fact that in the Caribbean, in Barbados, we lose between 6 and 8% every year to evaporation right through the barrel. Yeah, angel's share. The angel's <laughs> share. So at 12 years, we've lost 70% of the contents of the barrel. Which right. is the verge of economic instability for a product. That's like that. the verge. Seems That's like the verge, verge is yeah. far behind you. Yeah, so <laughs> you pass that point very, of no return. Very expensive to do rums this way, but this gives you these incredible flavor notes that you would not get in any other way unless you tried to emulate it by adding fake stuff later. So we don't do that. So we actually go through this process now. If you left that rum in the barrel for twenty years, do you know how much would be left? Yeah, like syrup. Zero. It'd be like there would be nothing left. Something sticky inside it, the barrel. Exactly. There'd be nothing useful left in it. So there's no such thing as a twenty-year-old rum anywhere in the Caribbean, or, or for that matter, anywhere along the equator. So how do people come up with these? You know, like people started brands of rum two years ago, and they've got this twenty-four-year-old rum, right? Well. You know, when you think about that, if you have a 24-year-old rum today, the cost of you making that, like I could make a 24-year-old rum if I wanted to, I'd take 100 barrels of real McCoy, I'd let it sit for 12 years, they'd all go down to 30% volume, right? And then I'd take those 100 barrels, and now they're all at 30%, I'd top them up with each other. So now I'd have 30 full barrels of all that product, and I'd let it sit for another 12 years. And that, because this is marketing, or sorry, because this is physics and not marketing, those would all go down to 30% again. So then I could, I could top those up. I'd have a total of 10 full barrels. I started with 100. I let 90% of what I produced evaporate with no ev economic benefit to me. There's absolutely no way I could sell you a 24-year-old rum for less than, let's say, minimum $500 a bottle. So all these brands out there that say Solera, 20. Yeah, that sounds and, ludicrously low. It, yeah, it's, it is. It's you'd insane. Be, you'd, you'd be, would you even, I don't think you'd break even. No, you wouldn't break even. And not only that, you, you'd really, in the end, you'd have an, a very over-oaked rum that would not be enjoyable at all. Yeah, sure. There's a point of re no return on that, too. It's a bell curve, right? You yep. Know, you aging can, is getting is good, 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 and then it gets to a top and plateaus, and then it starts to get worse. Exactly. It gets flat, yeah. And, and so you can over-oak a rum just like you can over-oak a wine. And in this case, you'd want to find the right sweet spot, literally, to pull that out and not put it out, you know, not have it go much farther. But for some reason, people in the Caribbean have for quite a while put these different monikers on their rum bottles, usually with the word Solera. So they'll say Solera 25 or, you know, slow aged 10 or whatever. They come up with all these other names, none of which are recognized by the TTB as a, an age statement. They're not legal age statements. They're called 
fanciful language by the TTB. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> so it's a marketing term. I could say that this rum was made from unicorn tears and the TTB would allow me to do that. So, because that's fanciful language. Because it's fanciful language. You know, I can say it was made by language. aliens, and it, this comes from the <laughs> planet Parsec, you know, Parsec Five, whatever. They wouldn't stop me from putting that on my label. But in, in the case of of Solera, people are putting that on there. They put a giant number on it, and then everybody thinks, "Oh, this must be the twenty five years old, twenty three years old, twenty one years old," when it's really not. You know, Solera and my, and my the joking, average consumer is is they have no idea easily duped. <laughs> well, they just don't know. They have it's because not they think someone like the TTB is taking care of them. Yeah, they think people are protecting their interests, and so you see these like giant numbers. We used numbers to, on right? There. We used yeah. to really take care. We yeah. bottling in bond and having the government look over your still house and right. all these things, and so right. we got used to that. And then now they don't really do that stuff anymore. Yeah, and the the consumer is the one who suffers, and and some of these uh, what do you want to call them? Cheaters. Some of these cheaters are out there making stuff that's. Not quite exactly misrepresented. They're misrepresenting, and I think they're deceiving their customers. And yeah. I think that honestly, you know, people can modify rums and they can put sweeteners in it and things like that, and that's fine. I, you know, I'm I'm not out here to tell you that that's wrong. I'm I'm here to tell you that, you know, essentially the the folks that are sort of undermining the integrity of all rum are the guys that put the fake age statements on there. Right. That is a drag. And if the Scots did that, if somebody in Scotland started putting fake age statements on a bottle, they would lose their minds. The cognac people, the champagne people would all go crazy if that started to happen. But for some reason, we don't have anybody except Richard Seal really talking about this and getting it out there because there just aren't a lot of traditional rum makers left. What's the name of your documentary and when can we expect to be able to watch it? It's called The Last Barbadian. It's going to hopefully be on PBS if they like it. <laughs> Seems like they like your stuff. Well, I've, yeah, I mean, I've won bringing home some awards. Yeah. <laughs> keep bringing home some awards. Hopefully They'll keep they putting will. you on the air. Yeah, you, are you trying to beat the last record here? Like, I'm going for six Emmys this time. No, I, one more. I gaffed this movie, too. I'm going to get the Emmy for Best Gaffing. But yeah, Best Boy, exactly. No, I, I, just, I just... Is there a timeline associated with when it might come out? or It'll be finished this year. Okay. So I don't know what the schedule will be if, if it goes out on the air right away. Um, I'm going to try to premiere it also theatrically. So we're going to do some uh, rum events where we're going to play it. Oh, um, yeah. So you'll probably be able to see it at some of the rum festivals that happen in the U.S., like San Francisco Rum Fest, um, the, the Miami Rum Congress in, in February. The um, uh, We're going to Chicago this weekend, but it's not going to be ready for that. Um, there's uh, There's one more. Well, there's the U.K. Rum Festival as well. So those are the possibilities. The world loves rum. <clears throat> there's so many choices. Speaking of so many choices, let's. There's two more to taste here, and we're running low on time. Here we go. So, uh, what do you have? Is it, is this the 14? Yeah, this one's the 14. Okay, so this is an actual super aged rum, and this is what super aging is really all about. So, this is a rum that has been aged for 14 full years in 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 uh, American oak. This, it's actually some of the rum has also been in Madeira casks for that time period. And in order to have a 14-year-old rum, Richard Seal needed to start about 20 years ago with this program to have enough product around to make this 6,000-bottle batch. So unless you were a major player in aged rum 20 years ago, there's no way you could physically have anything older than 12 now. So that's what real aged rum is all about. And so to, to see the year 14 on here is a really big deal. Because think about it, at 14 now we're getting down to like 20% in the barrel. And, and if you go to Scotland and you age rum or you age whiskey in Scotland for 14 years, you'd only lose 1% a year because of the climate. Yeah, the climate's so much different. So they'd, they'd still have, you know, 85% in the barrel. If you went to Kentucky, you'd only lose about 2% of that bourbon. So they'd have 24% loss. But for us, we're at 80% loss at this point because of evaporation. But we also have these incredible flavor notes as a component of that. So that's why we do it. 
And so that's the oldest run that Richard Seals ever made. Seems like that must have taken some incredible foresight to like 20, like in, in the late 90s say, you know, I think there's going to be, I foresee a market for this. I can't imagine if you had tried to, if he had pitched that idea in 1999, you, a lot of people would have looked at him like he was insane. Like I felt like you, there wasn't a market for that at that time, but just... Well, there was a very small... I think think genius makes itself recognized, you know? (laughs) (laughs) There was a very small um, uh, market in the European Union, especially in the UK, for these kinds of rums, for these super-aged rums. So they were certainly thinking about that. I mean, he's a fourth-generation rum blender. They've been doing it for a long time, since the 1800s in his family. So they really do know what they're they're talking about. And so he started putting this stuff together, and that's created this great opportunity for people to actually see how much of an effect that oak barrel is really having in that Madeira cast. Yeah, you can definitely really get the Madeira having. on the nose. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like right away, I was like, oh, fortified wine is in here somewhere. Yeah, it's pretty nice. And <clears> you don't have any, you don't have any, it's not overdone. It's not getting flat. You're not starting to get too much earth and char. Um, it's an incredibly well-balanced product. Warm, too. Yeah, so that's 92 proof. Oh, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> that was I was like, my chest feels a little warm sipping on this one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so uh, we, we beefed it up a little bit. And then uh, I don't want to get away without tasting this last one here. What's the last one? This is our 10-year, and this one's also for the bourbon drinker. I went to Richard uh, a long time ago and said, hey, I'm looking for a serious high-end rum that's going to speak to the bourbon drinker in America. It's really Mm going to get them excited about this. And so what what Richard has been doing for a long time, there were about a decade ago, there was a big scare that there weren't going to be enough barrels left. Do you remember, you guys remember when this came out? Yeah, I do, absolutely. And everyone was saying, oh my gosh, the sky's falling, we're not going to have enough wood, and there's, you know, blah, blah, blah. So Richard bought a whole bunch of virgin oak barrels that had never been used for bourbon and shipped them down to Barbados and filled them with rum just in case. Can this guy see the future? It he like is. He He's like Obi Wan Kenobi, making <laughs> rum. I will. I mean, no, I feel like. Thing. Uh, I feel like that's Yoda, by the way. Uh, I feel like. Um, <laughs> I'm glad you corrected me. Listen, your, man. I'm gonna get a bunch of emails if I don't. Yeah, we know. We know yeah. who our audience. Is. <laughs> I'm gonna get a bunch of emails if I don't. Um, Sorry. <clears throat> I mean, I've always kind of thought that that the blenders and distillers had like some kind of you know oracle and sight into the future. <laughs> uh, otherwise, otherwise there would be no innovations, right? Because sure. these things aren't like oh, you know what, I think I'm going to add sesame seeds to my bread this time, right? And they'll be done in an hour, yeah. right? This is like, oh, I think I'm going to put this in a Madeira barrel and I'll check back on it in 10 years. Yeah, hopefully it'll be good in a decade, yeah. But also having the enough foresight and enough experience to know, yeah, this is going to be good. Yeah, yeah, You yeah. know, those sesame seeds turned out to be a good idea. Look yep. at the buns at McDonald's, right? <laughs> they sell a bunch of them. <laughs> you know, not the same comparison, but like, yeah, all right, so I can do this, and I already have enough experience and know-how to envision what that's going to be like, right? Yes, yes. So it's like not only being able to sort of see the future, but in some strange way be able to taste, taste the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, Taste I was, was going to say, taste the future. I can't do yet a voice. <laughs> future tasting, you will. Oh, there we go. Man. Yeah. <laughs> That's Kermit the Frog, I think, actually. <laughs> no, that was like a pretty, yeah. the, the perfect Yoda from the guy who thought it was Obi-Wan Kenobi. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, but so, the, so the interesting you, thing about that, though, is that by going with 10 years in the virgin oak, we also blended that with our 12-year that was done in, in you know traditional bourbon barrels, mm-hmm. you know, ex-bourbon. Blended those two together, and and so we call it ten years because that's the youngest in the blend, um, which is the regulation actually. And so at, at that point, what you now have are all those incredible bourbon components, but they've mellowed for a full ten years, so it's absolutely luscious. I just think it's beautiful. Yeah, this one gives to me. Um, and P.S. Why are you? Why are you? Uh, is it a marketing uh, strategy to sort of target bourbon drinkers? Do you think they'd be the easiest ones to jump over to drinking your products? Or? No, it's it's just a. I just think it's a category of people that would be really interested if they'd ever gotten the chance to try it. Gotcha. 
Um, yeah, this one kind of comes off to me as a little bit like um, strikes my palate in that way that you're talking about, sort of sort of whiskey like, but then it fades into like this almost tea like quality. Like nice. I feel like if I had this, you know, this is, we're just drinking out of little tasting glasses, but if I had this over ice uh, with like even just a lemon wedge, I'd be like, oh, this is like a tea. Yeah, sure. Boozy rum bourbon tea well you're getting the natural sweetness that's the vanillin from the wood right yeah and and you're going to get a bit of that from the wood but the cool thing about it is this is the perfect example when you taste through this line like this of how many different things you can create just by using different barrels different ages different abvs you know percentage of alcohol rather than all the same thing you know molasses or sugarcane vodka and just putting this flavoring and that flavoring and the next sugar and the next sugar and the different things that you, you know, rum flavor profile stuff that you buy and put in as additives, which just gives you a headache later. Right. Man, this has been fascinating. Um, there's a future rum drinker right out the window. <laughs> um, this has been a fascinating talk, and I feel like we could keep going. Um, sadly, we've, we're, we're running out of time. Um, uh, Bailey, how can people get in touch with you or get in touch with your products uh, if they want to? I don't know, ask you a question or, or, sure. or, or get, get, a, get a couple of these bottles. Come to uh, therealmccoyrum.com. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's our, our website. And you can learn all about it. I've got a whole series of videos that I've been shooting called School of Rum that awesome. interview go lots that of out. people. And, and I'm, I'm doing more of those this year and interviewing all the people who are part of the Guardians group. Um, and, uh, and Is there can, a link to the Real McCoy movie anywhere? Yeah, it's on the on the front page of the, on the homepage. So you can watch the documentary film all the way through if you'd like. I'm going to um, go watch it. It's it's an awful lot of fun to check it out. I highly recommend having a glass of rum in your hand when you're watching the film. You'll, I'll be. You'll enjoy it. Do that with most movies anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's that's how you can learn about it. And, and pretty much we're available now in all 50 states in the U.S. and 26 countries internationally. Outstanding. So if, you, uh, if you're interested in finding the Real McCoy rum, just ask at your local bottle shop um, and, or your local bar and they'll be able to get it for you. Yeah, right on. Josh, who, who, do, who does someone need to connect with? Uh, how do they connect with you here in New York City if they want to get this on the bar? I mean, you can just email me at joshua at realmccoyrum.com or hit me up on Facebook. I'm happy to come by Josh Perez. anyone's uh, restaurant or bar and taste them on some real rum. Yeah, outstanding. Uh, what a great episode, guys. Thanks for talking to us about all this incredible rum. Uh, go check out Speakeasy Podcast's uh, uh, Instagram page, and I'll have some photos of the bottles and uh, some of the behind-the-scenes stuff here on the show. Uh, just real quickly, I want to shout out my buddy Lincoln Cherney. He had uh, uh, eye surgery today, so hopefully, even though he can't see right now, at least he's listening to the show. Lincoln, I hope you're tuning in. Uh, you're, one of my, you're one of our biggest fans here, and we appreciate you listening every week. A couple of things I've been mentioning for the past few weeks. Um, my buddy and colleague Chris Reed was diagnosed uh, 11 months ago with ALS, uh, which is slowly robbing of his voice and his motor skills, and soon it's going to rob him of his ability to work behind one of my favorite bars in New York City, Bargoto. Um, please go to uh, GoFundMe to support Chris Reed in his fight against ALS. Um, and then finally, bar methods applications are still live. We're almost full. Uh, the class is focused on the fundamental skill sets needed to be successful behind a cocktail bar. Uh, learning not only how to perform these techniques properly, but also why and when to apply them and what they contribute to the overall product will help you elevate your skills and creativity behind the bar. Apply now at barmethods.com. Uh, finally, this show brought to you in part by Grand Army, uh, one of the greatest neighborhood bars in any neighborhood that you don't live in. <laughs> Grand <laughs> Army, the best neighborhood bar not in your neighborhood. Um, so thanks, everybody, for being on the show, and uh, we look forward to having you tune in with us soon. Cheers, guys. Thank, Thank you. Thank you for Cheers. having us. Want more of the speakeasy? 
follow us and ask questions on Instagram at Speakeasy Podcast or on Twitter at Speakeasy Radio. You can find Damon at Damon Bolte, and you can find me at Creative Drunk on all platforms. Take a moment to write us a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite platform and give us a star rating, five if possible. If you're visiting New York City or a resident, stop by the studio and hang out with us during an episode. Reach out beforehand to make sure we'll be here. We'd love to see you. And please support our show by visiting heritageradionetwork.org and clicking on the beating heart to donate. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.